welcome to this episode of Sotocast. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce my partner in crime and office mate and wonderful colleague, Vicky Dale. And um, we are talking about questionnaire design for subtle projects. And I let Vicky introduce herself and then start asking her questions. Thanks very much, Natalie. Um, so yes, I'm a senior academic and digital development advisor in academic and digital development. Um, yeah, we've worked on a few things together. We have uh -huh, yeah. um, something that I did a lot of before uh, we worked together, though, and we've done a little bit since, but I, but I think I did it really more in a previous role was survey design. Um, and it's something that does take quite a lot of practice to get right. Mm. Um, it's very easy to produce a questionnaire. It's very easy to produce a not so good questionnaire. And so hopefully today we can talk about maybe some of the, the lessons that I've learned, the painful lessons that I've learned that I can share with other people who want to conduct surveys for, um, you know, subtle purposes. Uh -huh. Okay, thank you very much, um, Vicky. And I'm definitely going to start picking your brain right away. So in our in our roles and undertaking subtle, so in, in what circumstances would I want to conduct a survey? So what context would be, uh, or what kind of research would be the best to use a survey in? Okay, well, I think you'd use survey for, for basic evaluation um, research in terms of, of learner experience research and getting mm -hmm. mainly quantitative, but not exclusively, um, mainly quant quantitative data, um, although some qualitative questionnaires exist. So. Yeah. I think surveys are very commonly used for student evaluations. They're often used happy sheets because they're often called happy sheets <laughs> okay. because, um, you know, people go through and they tick the boxes and, they, you know, there's a perception that they don't think too much about the boxes while they're ticking them. Um, and as such, for evaluation purposes, they're only ever just one measure that should be triangulated with other data, other evidence. Mm -hmm. um, they are useful for scholarship research, too. And the reason why um, surveys are part of the overall toolkit, um, your, scho your scholarship toolkit, is that um, you can gather quite a lot of data quite quickly from a large population. Mm -hmm. So particularly if you have a very large class size, say you've got 600 students, yeah. to go around and interview those students individually would, would be <laughs> impractical. But you can get a lot of information very quickly um, by, by surveying those students. And so I tend to think that questionnaires are more of the, of the what, when, how many, uh -huh. whereas more qualitative measures like focus groups and interviews, for example, uh -huh. are getting into the why or the how. They give you much deeper, much richer insight, typically, than a survey would. Of course, like I said, sometimes surveys can be qualitative in design as well. So you can get that rich data from, from surveys. Uh -huh. And many people use a combination of, of quantitative and qualitative measures in their surveys. Um, do you think, is there... Is there a situation where, where I could use a survey, even if I have a smaller cohort of students? Or is that not recommended? What would you say? I was thinking about this earlier and, you know, myself, I have published a study, it was a, a study on open book exams and students' impressions of open book exams. Yeah. And that was a, a survey conducted with 14 students, uh -huh. which, you know, it did produce some really interesting, useful data and the study was published. Uh -huh. But for a small cohort size like that, I would tend to go more down the qualitative route in future. Um, I think it's a little bit like Amazon stars. So we don't all buy from Amazon. Um, mm -hmm. But, but some of us that do, you'll see items that have got 
four stars. Say you're uh-huh. going to say, I'm going to buy an item. I want you to have at least four stars. And you see two products and one of them's got an average of four stars, but it's only got 10 people have rated yeah. the item. And another one has got four stars and 400 people have rated the item. You're clearly going to go with the, the seller that's um, got many yeah. more ratings. And I think questionnaire is the same. I think the more participants or respondents you have, the greater faith you have uh-huh. in that quantitative data. Yeah, that's actually a really good comparison because you you need a certain amount of, of contributions to actually have a pattern emerge. Otherwise, it's not not that clear of a picture that makes sense. Um, so what ethics approval would I need if, if I conduct a, a survey with my students? So ethics is a really important issue, and I'm glad you raised that. Um, I think if you're conducting an evaluation survey, Uh, with your students purely to enhance your teaching to inform it so that you can make appropriate changes as you go forward and that's purely an internal quality assurance process then you don't need ethics approval Mm -hmm. however in the context of scholarship where you're going to be disseminating the results Mm -hmm. hopefully at conferences and through journal articles perhaps even through books when you're externally disseminating the information then you must have ethics approval from the outset Mm -hmm. um And bearing in mind as well the lead times for these things, it does take a long time to design a really good survey. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that preparation is obviously getting the ethics in place. Um, You need to think about, you know, how you're going to to gather and and store the data, what you're going to do with it, how long you're going to keep it for, etc. And yeah, sort of importantly with with ethics in terms of of survey research, Mm -hmm. I guess that sort of priorities for ethics are confidentiality and or anonymity yeah so a lot of surveys you might conduct with your learners are anonymous from the outset mm-hmm. um, or you might actually know who you're um, disseminating the surveys to but you might subsequently anonymize the data whichever okay. path you take confidentiality or anonymity mm-hmm. you need to reassure participants that their data is going to be treated in an ethical mm-hmm. manner um, There's another issue as well around coercion. You don't want to coerce people to participate in surveys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have heard of instances where people have awarded assessment grades, small percentages for absolutely for participation in a survey. Now I would put that under the heading of coercion. So I would say that that's not appropriate. And I have to say that's not anybody in this institution. Okay. That's somebody else from another completely different institution. Yeah. Um, we're in in that context. That is considered considered normal practice. But I would say if you're giving somebody assessment percentages for survey completion, that falls under coercion. Oh yeah. And, so and I, I, I would avoid doing that. Yeah, and and I think that also leads to to one of the ethical considerations that always comes up when you when you. Uh, uh, involve your students in in your in your research practice is that power relationship between you as the educator and your students right so that's something that needs to be discussed as well absolutely so and that's something that comes up in the ethics form when you look at it you know are are the the survey respondents in a dependent relationship with you for example students teachers Mm -hmm. Um, and so there should be no coercion to get students to to participate if they don't want to they they have legitimate reasons to not participate in a study Um, and so 
but you know you, you, you sometimes see the sort of statement in, in consent forms you know you, or plain language statements that you have a choice as to to whether to participate or not it will not influence your grades or the way that you're treated in the course and so forth so basically i think when it comes to ethics the term I came across in, in a paper by Coughlin et al. 2007, they, they used the term, it's been used elsewhere, non-maleficence, which is about do no harm. So essentially, even though you might consider, and I put it in brackets, survey research to be low risk compared to perhaps more clinically invasive research, we have that obligation not to, to cause any harm mm -hmm. and to make sure that we safeguard our students' data. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So I think those really important uh, considerations to understand that ethics is an integral part of your scholarship planning of of planning your subtle right. Absolutely. And um, so so we figured out why we want to do the research right uh, the the why we want to use surveys. We figured out our ethics, got the approval. So. What are our main design considerations for a survey? Where, where do I start if I've never done that before? So design considerations when you're um, thinking about the design of your survey. I think, first of all, you know, what is the purpose of your survey? Mm -hmm. Do you have a research question underpinning it? And, and will the survey and the data that it produces, will, will that actually help address your research question? That's a fundamental principle I think of survey design or any research method to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to think about whether this is a one-off survey mm -hmm. or whether it might be a pre-post survey for example you might want to survey students um, levels of confidence or, or perceptions before an intervention and then after an intervention um, or you might want to do a longitudinal survey for example if you wanted to look at um, students perceptions of their employability skills and their attainment of those you could follow them up um, throughout their course and then perhaps beyond graduation so that would be a longitudinal survey so I think thinking about that first of all I think question types are really important. Mm -hmm. You need to think about the question types to think about what sort of data you're going to generate. Mm -hmm. um, so is it nominal data, for example, is it categorical options that, that people can choose from? So, so what would be nominal data? Could you give us an example? Yeah, so nominal data would be, um, so for example, you know, what country do you live in in the UK? So Scotland, England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales. Yeah. So that, that would be an example. It's, it's like a multiple choice question and, and, you know, you would have a value probably coded one, two, three or four. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the relationship between one, two, three or four is completely arbitrary. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and the other, the next sort of type of data is ordinal data, which typically comes from Likert scale questions. And that's things like strongly disagree, disagree, mm -hmm. neutral, agree, strongly agree. Um, although there are variations, some people like to use a six point Likert scale, so you've got enough distinctions between the, the types of responses, but you force a positive or negative response. Some people like to make it seven, just to, again, to, to give that sort of middle option, but draw out the possible differentiations when you're doing between comparisons, for example, yeah. and just to get a more sort of sophisticated understanding of how people feel. Um, but that generates ordinal data. And, and one thing I wanted to say about that was that a lot of people take Likert scale data and they um, analyze it as if it was parametric data, parametric normally distributed data. Mm -hmm. And so people will report the results of means and standard deviations quite often in papers. 
However, um, ordinal data means that, you know, sort of if you have a scale of one to four, then four is not exactly twice what two is and um, three isn't two more than one it, it you know it's a linear progression it's um, from one end to the other but the difference or the distance between one and two doesn't necessarily need to be the same as between four and five mm -hmm. so what we need to do, do then is look at the median or the mode mm -hmm. probably the median and take a measure of um you know central displacement more like um interquartile range for example so that's non-parametric statistics. There's a really good book by Julia Pallant, and I think it exists an e-book in the library. There's certainly a number of paper copies over various editions, but there's an excellent chapter in non-parametric statistics and how okay. to analyze those. Okay. So I would, I would... Sorry, <laughs> I didn't do the hand sign. Do you know we have a hand sign when I interrupt Vicky <laughs> and I forgot to do the hand sign. I just wanted to say um, we're going to look up the the reference and put it in the comments of the of the podcast as well. So you can have a look yourself. Thanks. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And then there's other design considerations as well. Quite often people will um, will write something and they'll, they'll ask an open um, question and it will be something along the lines of um, you know, let's say, did you have a good holiday? They might ask, but actually what they want to know is what did you do in your holiday? So just be really specific about the wording that you use. Yeah, and also actually, if you're asking, did you have a good holiday? You're already biasing the question because you're implying an assumption that they had a good holiday. So I think sometimes we need to also be really careful on how we actually phrase these, these questions. Because then if someone asks me, did you have a good holiday? I think they expect me to say yes. So that might bias the answers as well to the questions. It can become quite complicated, can't it, Vicky? Absolutely. So I, you picked up on a really good thing there that I wanted to mention, which is avoiding leading questions. Uh, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. You'd be better to ask something like, you know, what was your holiday like? Mm -hmm. um so it, it is it's it's very you need to think very carefully about the wording is it likely to bias the participant are they are they likely to understand what you what you mean by the question it is as what they mean um so it's worthwhile piloting your questionnaire mm -hmm. the other thing is is how you present the questions in a survey you obviously want to think about the order of different sections and what i would always suggest is that you group together related questions under a single heading which in a, you know, in a paper-based uh, questionnaire, that would be a different sort of page break. But on an online questionnaire, it would be the electronic equivalent of a page break. So you might have four related questions on, on one screen, then you click next and you have the, the next bunch of related questions on another screen. And just clearly labeling it and grouping those questions together just reduces the cognitive load a little bit for the respondents. Okay. Um, there's an interesting thing about demographics. Should you put them at the start or end of a questionnaire? Some people like to put them at the end. I like to put them at the beginning because if I want to do any between group, uh, between group compa comparison. <laughs> comparisons, between group comparisons, then um, it's useful to have that data. And sometimes people um, will stop a survey and they'll submit it only partially complete. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the demographic data and you've only got the other data, then when you go to do you know, comparisons, then, then you lose those, those people's data. Um, one of the questions actually, while you're mentioning demographic data is, um, do you actually always have to collect demographic data? Because I remember from my 
long, long, long time ago in my undergraduate, <laughs> when we had statistics, it was almost kind of a common thing to do to, to collect demographic data. But it is actually unethical to collect data that isn't necessary. So how would I know if I need to collect demographic data or not? How do I make this decision? Again, that's a really good question. And I think it comes down to your research question. Um, you know, is, is gathering, will gathering demographic data help you answer your, your research question? Um, so, for example, if you're specifically interested in, in comparing the views of one group of people based on their demographics with another group of people, then, then it may be useful to gather that data. Yeah. But I would say that that would only be relevant if the work that you'd undertaken in preparation for the study mm -hmm. had highlighted this to be an important issue. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we take... Um, I'm trying to think of a, of a random example. Let, let's take, for example, you know, students from Europe versus students from America who have come over um, to study here and you wanted to compare their views because you perceived that maybe there was a culturally different you know, experience before they came to university. Then it may be relevant to ask that information, but I wouldn't ask it for the sake of asking for it. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's no point. I, I reviewed a paper recently um, mm. and the person had, had gathered a lot of demographic data down to really quite personal details mm -hmm. and used that um, in a regression analysis to show different variables which could impact on, on students, um, you know, engagement with this particular type of learning. I'm keeping it vague, but this particular type of learning. Mm -hmm. The literature review did not suggest that any of these variables were of any interest. And actually, when the study was done and the analysis was done, surprisingly, there was no effect of these variables. So if, you, if there's no reason to be collecting that data, you don't need to. Did they, did they actually make a case for why they wanted to collect the data? Because sometimes if there is something, you know, if there's a gap in the literature, it could be that they decided, hey, nobody has actually looked at it. Did they, did they make that case or... or no, I didn't feel it was it was present in the, in the case they were making. You know, people people typically write their introduction. It sets the scene. It incorporates the literature that people have engaged with and looked at before doing a survey. And then you, that typically culminates in the research yeah. question. There was nothing in there to indicate that those variables would help answer the research question at all. I think as well, one thing that I've been discussing too with colleagues is um, is, is to do with demographics and it's to do with protected characteristics. Mm -hmm. And I know you've been involved in these discussions yeah. as well, yeah. Natalie. Um, and that is, you know, say, for example, gender. So, you know, we might have looked at this, you know, in years past, we might have considered male, female. This is a dichotomous variable. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, um, it's not. Um, we need to be more inclusive. And so for things like protected characteristics like gender, or nationality or, or any protected characteristics, we need to give people the option of, of describing themselves as they would like to be described. Yeah. Um, that's just basic respect for our participants. Exactly, and, and I think this has luckily changed over the years because when I had my first statistics training, gender was just considered a binary data. It, that's Absolutely. how it was taught. And, um, and but there's lots of literature out there on how you can address this in your research and how you can be sensible, sensitive. Or oh, this is where the German translation does come in really well. Sensitive, yeah, yeah. sensitive to your to your research participants and inclusive. 
Yeah. And it's been suggested that people look at the Stonewall information on the web as well. And I think that would be a great starting point. But I, I do think that for protected characteristics, having an open text box where people can describe themselves would be the ideal solution there. Or not if they don't want to. Exactly. Or not. Exactly. People might choose not to. And that's perfectly legitimate. Yeah. OK, thank you. So, uh, um, so we've spoken about <clears throat> about the inception of a it's inception the right word yeah of a of a question you have the design of it but one of the problems sometimes with questionnaires can be actually getting the right response rates so if you not have enough students responding to you you're having a bit of a problem so vicky do you have any tips on how we can boost response rates so um yeah, I mean, obviously there's things like the timing of the survey. You want to avoid survey fatigue. Our students get surveyed so much already um, that we need to think about that. You know, it might not just be students, it could be colleagues. We need to think about busy times that they might have. It's very useful, I think, to set out a very clear overview of what the study involves. So typically you would do that through a plain language statement or also known as an information sheet. So providing that information to your potential respondents is courteous and an ethical good practice. Yeah. Um, a personalised invitation can also help if possible. That's often not possible where we're doing online surveys. Mm -hmm. um, all those systems are, are evolving all the time. I think keeping things clearly organised and well signposted perhaps including things like branching questions so for example um so going back to the holiday metaphor you might have a question that said did you go on holiday this year yes no and then you have a series of questions asking how your holiday was well if you didn't go on holiday that would be really annoying yeah so, so let's just skip those let's just introduce the branching into the the questionnaire so that students or participants don't need to respond to that yeah um, clear language is really important, so um, piloting can help with that. I guess the most important thing really is to keep the questionnaire short. And yeah. I think if you think it's short, shorten it again, yeah. because it will inevitably <laughs> be too long. Um, and I think, you know, most people will complete a survey while they're having a cup of coffee. You mm -hmm. know, for as long as it takes you to drink a cup of coffee, that's, that's a reasonable amount of time you can expect people to spend on that. And just one thing. One final thing yeah. um, is that you can set up the system online. So, so if you're using online surveys, for example, you can set that up to send regular reminders to non-respondents. Um, if you're doing something completely anonymously, it may be that everyone gets that reminder. Um, but if you have a list of, of you know, people to contact and then the system knows who has and hasn't responded, then the system can chase up the non-respondents yeah. as well. As, as to the time, you said, you know, you mentioned the time it takes a survey. I've actually seen quite often surveys um, showing this survey is going to take you five minutes, the survey is going to take you three minutes, 10 minutes. So the, so the participants have a bit of an idea how much time this takes. And I think some of the systems will actually estimate how much it might take you or if you pilot it with a couple of colleagues you can get a rough estimate of how much it takes people to go through the survey and that will help your participants absolutely i think that's a really good idea so the piloting will help with that um, and just being transparent about the time that it's going to take and it may be that if you've got things grouped in different sections there may be a whole section of questions that somebody feels is irrelevant or not interesting they may choose to skip but i think for each section if you can indicate um, for each section how long it will take but also the whole questionnaire overall I mm -hmm. think that would be useful and, and also bearing in mind you cannot pilot your own 
questionnaire because you'd be yeah. so familiar with the items <laughs> in it that you would just you would you would whiz through it and it wouldn't be realistic of the time that somebody new to your survey would take yes that's true but you can try and break your survey we've done that before <laughs> yes that's a good idea as well uh -huh. yeah definitely yeah. so branching <laughs> exactly um what sort of data do you actually generate with a survey so and how do you go about analyzing it okay so we touched on this a little bit earlier when we talked about um, nominal data when we talked about ordinal data when we talked about um you know open text responses for example um as i said that the, the non-parametric statistics are the ones you generally want to be applying to survey data um, there will be exceptions, of course, and, and other different statistical techniques you might want to use. But typically, mm -hmm. um, in my experience, um, you, you want to do descriptive statistics and, and summary graphs from the, from the first instance, just to get a feel for your data and what it's saying. Mm -hmm. um, it, in the same vein, if you've gathered textual information, you might want to do some sort of word cloud with that data to see what's emerging most clearly before you actually go into any detailed analysis. Mm -hmm. um, Julia Pallant has got a, a really good summary of the different non-parametric statistics. So there's things like chi-square and um, there's the, the Crusco-Wallace ANOVA for comparing two different groups. Mm -hmm. um, no, the Crusco-Wallace ANOVA is for comparing um, more than two groups. The Man Whitney U test is for comparing two different groups. Um, so, so yeah, we, I can add information about the different analysis yeah. to your podcast resources if that would be helpful. Yeah, I think that would be helpful for people, particular if someone hasn't isn't very familiar with questionnaire design and analysis, that might be quite useful. Fab. Um, oh, just a, one other thing I wanted to say um, was the analysis of qualitative information. So it's not enough to say that you've uh, qualitatively analysed the, the open data. You have to be more specific in terms of the method that you've used as well. And so, you know, there's a couple of references. Again, we'll make them available. Braun and Clark, 2006, um, which um, talks about thematic analysis in, in the field of psychology, but it's applicable elsewhere. And another one by Thomas, which I think is also 2006, which is about a, a sort of generic um, inductive approach to analysing data. Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to add there's a new paper from a newish paper from last year from 2019 and this is a really good introduction to thematic analysis. Um, it gives a bit of history and explains the differences and I might actually add this is really good because one of the issues we sometimes have if we review papers is that people use the qualitative data from the from the questionnaire basically the raw data, just the answers that we are put in without analyzing them. And this is not how to deal with these open-ended questions and the qualitative data. They need to be analyzed as well. And so looking into different ways of analyzing open questions in, in, a, in a survey or in a questionnaire is quite important. So you cannot just use them as if, because that's basically considered raw data, isn't it? It is. I, I agree with that. I think you've got to be, um, you've got to to think carefully about this data, and you've got to analyze it. So you've got to give people an idea of how representative a, a theme is mm -hmm. um, from your data. I think there is a place for including raw quotes, and that is in the context of of providing illustrative quotes 
um, for for added credibility to show that the data comes from you know a genuine participant and and this is how they've described it this is how they've they've perceived the situation through their mind and their, their eyes um but i think there's a that's very different from cherry picking comments to, to support <laughs> what it is you want to say um so that's why we need to be really careful and take quite a rigorous approach to thematic analysis mm -hmm. and the same is true of, of um statistical analysis as well you know we don't simply conduct the, the the um the analyses that we think will give us the best answers or we don't we don't tailor the statistics to suit our argument you know we have to to be rigorous in applying these techniques and acknowledge the limitations of our studies yeah. we always have to acknowledge the limitations of our studies and i think that leads us all the way back to ethics again that transparency of the process and what was a what you were able to show and what you were not able to show is actually key even in the analysis so it goes throughout the whole process of your project absolutely and i think this reflects your integrity as a researcher mm -hmm. and i think that's something that you continue to develop and reflect on uh, is how you approach research and maybe become more aware as well over time of the sort of the biases and the assumptions that you bring to your data when you're collecting it when you're analyzing it and so forth and being transparent about that in the write-up mm -hmm. so write up <laughs> you gave me the keyword uh how would you go about reporting the results of a survey how do i write about that yes there's probably lots <laughs> of different ways to do that I mean, I think, you know, a lot of um, survey software, like, like Bristol Online Surveys, it's now just called Online Surveys, that will already summarize a lot of your quantitative data for you um, so that you can easily see lovely bar charts, but that tends to be quite flat. It doesn't give you the between group comparisons and things. Mm -hmm. um, I think you would present your data in terms of, well, it depends what the, the purpose is really. Are you producing a detailed report for internal consumption by your own school? Or are you actually producing a, a paper for a well-respected journal where you're kind of expected to get straight to the point with the data? You're expected to kind of, you need to present the data that helps address your research question, or at least the the outcomes of the analysis of your data to help address your research question um and typically you know for most of these papers there'll be your introduction um where you you set the scene and then you establish your research questions you've got your your methods um where you you describe the context in a rich way yeah. um you, you present the methods that you've used to gather and analyze the data then you present your results which is as you said not your raw results yeah. uh, but but the, the output of your analysis as relevant to the research question so you may not report absolutely all the data you've gathered particularly in an article and then the discussion should draw on those findings but importantly and this has probably come up elsewhere natalie the discussion shouldn't be a reiteration of the findings it should be no. an interpretation of the findings yeah. it should be you aligning your findings of the study outcomes with what else is happening in the literature okay. so you're almost having to do a literature review at the start before you do your survey and yeah. then again once you've got your data to kind of contextualize that in relation to other people's findings and generate new insights new information and then obviously the conclusions are typically you know what were the main key points and what are the implications for practice going forwards and i think that's actually the most important part is to contextualize your data with what you have read before with what you have thought about before and how your data compares with the rest of either you have addressed a gap in 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 the literature 
or you wanted to try and find out if what you have found in the literature is applicable in your local context. And then you can contextualize that in this discussion exactly. So it's really important to, to do. Yeah, it's where your studies adding new value um, to the sector. It, it, the data itself is, is you know, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's great to get data. I love getting new data. I love data. Nothing, love data. <laughs> Nothing more exciting than getting your hands on some new data. But actually, it's what the data tells you and what lessons you can draw from that that's more yeah. meaningful to everyone else, really. Yes, and people can get lost in looking at data. I am a victim of oh, yes. <laughs> of NVivo queries. I think especially with qualitative data, you can get really immersed in it to the point where it just, yeah, it's massive sometimes. So yes. that is something to consider if you are gathering qualitative data through your survey. <laughs> exactly. And I have last but not least a question. So what are your top tips you would give educators who look into designing and administering surveys to their learners? What are your top tips? Good question. So top tips, I would say, first of all, read around the subject, make sure that you're really well informed about the subject before you start putting together a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Have a look and see how have other people investigated this area before? Are there, for example, any validated inventories or instruments that you could actually adapt or use mm -hmm. within your own survey? Um, and that may be the case if you're looking at specific um, specific facets of, of people such as um, self-efficacy or their approaches to learning mm -hmm. or the need for cognition or something like that, where you have an established inventory and you want to build that into your survey so that you can make comparisons between previous studies and previous literature. Um, and it could be all or part of your, your survey or you can pick and mix from different inventories. Um, I know that we've got a colleague who's doing that at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, now, let's see. So that's your that's Ooh, your, your survey. <laughs> for top tips and you got lost in your own thoughts. <laughs> I did get lost in my own thoughts. Yeah, so I think I think really think about the design of it because mm -hmm. it, it's rubbish in, rubbish out. Yeah. It's so easy to produce a questionnaire and you really want to make sure it answers your research question and you really want to make sure that the data it generates is something that you can do something with. You can analyze that data. Mm -hmm. um, surveys might seem like an easy option. Um, because they're they're kind of administered remotely, so so they're maybe not as intensive as something like focus groups or or interviews. Yeah. But that's why perhaps because they are administered at at, at a distance, mm -hmm. we need to be even more explicit about you know what the questions mean and having very clear signposting and using branching appropriately. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like having a distance learner, isn't it? We need to be yeah. kind of. We need to provide a lot of signposting and instruction and, and have really clear instructions. And that's exactly the same um, with a, an online questionnaire where participants are undertaking it at, at a distance. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, is maybe trying to think, just have fun. I mean, oh, it's great getting new data. It's great. <laughs> You know, especially when you've spent such a long time designing it. There's one study that I've got and it took myself and a research assistant six months to design this survey that went out to members of the veterinary profession. Don't say that, that. Don't say that. You will discourage people from <laughs> <laughs> six months. That's awesome. well, why did it take you so long? Why did it take you so long? Because we were researching it in such depth. We really wanted to do an amazing job because it, it was the whole profession essentially not that it was a yeah. sample of the whole profession we were yeah. surveying we wanted to get it just right we okay. wanted to make sure from a research perspective that we were really 
familiar with with the concepts we're investigating so we did a huge amount of reading around it yeah. um, we also piloted it pre-piloted it even just to make sure it made sense yeah um it, you know obviously for most people it's not going of course it's not going to take that long <laughs> but I think it's still important it's still important to have the pre-pilot phase where you just get somebody to look at it and say does this make sense does this get what we're trying to do and then a proper pilot with you know a small sample of people uh, before you actually launch into your survey of course I know that a lot of people don't have that opportunity particularly in the context of of say for example people doing our PG cap there's yeah. really quite a compressed timeline in which mm -hmm. people can actually think about the design of a survey yeah um so but but I would say actually even asking a colleague to have a look at the questions or trying to answer the questions can show you if your formulations are slightly off or if the people reading your questions actually understand understand the questions if you know if they are biased so even just asking someone to read your questions can help to to find out things that don't work quite well mm -hmm. absolutely it's interesting when you do online surveys it's so much easier than paper-based surveys because for example if you've got a, a Likert scale you don't get people sort of putting a cross in between two and three you have to force them <laughs> with one or two or a three and yeah. um, but that can be a negative thing as well because if you haven't thought out carefully what your options are and you present options so for example we get a lot of university surveys for example or some university surveys that go out to university staff and they present the list of colleges but not the services and that that's an instant thing that somebody should have picked that up mm -hmm. um so it's these little things you know it, it just it, it's good to be aware of that and like you say to pilot it even with a colleague who can say wait a minute we're missing something here yeah exactly okay so thank you vicky so much for the introduction into survey design and running surveys and i am sure you're happy to answer questions when someone tweets you absolutely i'm, I'm always happy to to answer questions um you know people also want to obviously you know there's there's a limit to how many questionnaires we can preview but but i am always happy just to to give a sense check to people as well if they're doing a scholarship type inquiry and and they've prepared a, a questionnaire because i love seeing questionnaires love them <laughs> i know anyway thank you so much for joining me today and for answering these questions and dealing with the wobbly internet because i can see my picture keeps freezing <laughs> So thanks everyone. Bye Vicky. That was a pleasure. Thanks Natalie. Bye everyone.